You're listening to Something Real with Pastor Rich Zeiger and Stacy Cozio, connecting the reality of God to the realities of life. Thanks for joining us. Hey, welcome everybody to uh, this newest episode of uh, Something to Talk About, uh, part of the Something Real podcast, the home of professional podcasting. Uh, and I am flying solo here today. Uh, Stacy is not available. Uh, she's uh, dealing with some things, and, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about her new song that she uh, wrote for this past Sunday. Uh, and it, I'll read you some of the lyrics to that. Uh, we're going to be looking at Numbers chapter 35, verses 1 to 34. And as we kind of try to unpack this a little bit, uh, the the idea that uh, that we're going to be processing is, you know, how do we relate the cities of refuge in ancient Canaan uh, as Israel is about to come into this land uh, and God is commanding them to establish these cities? How do we see that in light of our lives today and, and make connection between the reality of God and the realities of life? And so, uh, anyhow, as we work through this in in numbers 35 uh, the lord commands moses to uh, have the people establish cities for the levites uh, back in uh, in numbers 18 we saw that the the levites did not receive land as an inheritance their inheritance was the lord and so as their uh, as the previous chapter we just looked at in chapter 34 uh, was laying out the the scope of the land in general, giving us borders, and then the the tribes would have that distributed by lot. Um, more land for a tribe that has more people, less for a tribe that has fewer people. Well, now today we're looking at this chapter where God is commanding those tribes who've received the land to take from the land that they've been given to give towns, 48 towns to be specific, uh, to the tribe of Levi so that uh, the Levites would have a place to live, would have a place uh, to raise their flocks, so they'd give them the surrounding pasture land around the towns. And then uh, as, uh, as, these cities of, uh, of, as these cities for the Levites were established, there would also be, uh, uh, there would also be established six uh, cities of refuge, and God describes what they would be for and where they would be. Three of them would be on the east side of the Jordan, uh, where uh, Gad and Reuben and uh, half the tribe of Manasseh uh, have uh, settled in this particular uh, place that, that's uh, big and vast and open, doesn't have the same uh, towns that, that you see on the west side of the Jordan, uh, but it's good for raising livestock, and they uh, are suited for that. So. Uh, as they come across, which they are not doing in the book of Numbers, that we stop before they cross the Jordan, but they will be in the book of Joshua going across and taking these lands. What we see here is that um, they're treating it as if it has already happened. God is speaking to them as if they already have the land. They are responding to God as if they already have the land. So there's, uh, there's an act of faith that says, I don't see it yet. I'm not experiencing yet, but I, I know that God is faithful. God has said it, therefore it is. And I'm going to trust this and move forward. So that's where we find ourselves. And now 
as uh, as this chapter lays out, the, the big picture is giving the cities to the Levites. But most of this chapter, most of this passage relates to the cities of refuge. Not only the cities themselves, but the idea of finding refuge here in these cities. So uh, starting with verse 6, uh, as Moses is telling them about uh, God's command, and he's writing this down for us, uh, he points out in 35, 6 and following, six of the towns you give the Levites will be cities of refuge, to which a person who has killed someone may flee. And then he goes on throughout uh, the rest of, of this passage to establish the difference between uh, intentional murder, where, where you kill someone, you're intending to kill someone, there's hostility, uh, and there's an animus there, and, and, and you are, in whatever way, you're striking them with something, you're taking a life on purpose. And then differentiating between that and the accidental taking of the life, what we might call manslaughter, uh, where you do a thing, and maybe it's of no fault of your own, maybe it's foolishness, but there is still a culpability because a life has been taken, blood has been shed, but you can't, uh, and, and you can't undo it, but it, it doesn't treat those, um, those manslaughter situations the same way that it treats intentional murder. So in this passage, these six cities, three on one side of the Jordan and three on the other, are spread uh, throughout the land so that people can run to them when, uh, when the avenger of blood, the one who would seek atonement or revenge um, on behalf of their dead relative, this is commanded by God. It's uh, the form of capital punishment that's being used here. In fleeing from them, you could flee to these cities of the Levites that are designated as cities of refuge or what we might term in, in today's language, sanctuary cities. Uh, as, as we see that lay out, it, it might be, you know, <laughs> it might be hard for us to connect the dots and say, well, I haven't killed anybody, so you know, what does this have to do with me? I'm not in ancient Israel. We're not trying to go into Babylon. Um, but as we are uh, unfolding this, there are some principles that, you know, we're just briefly going over it, but there are some principles that we want to make sure we understand um, that we can observe from the text. And uh, one of them, as I started the sermon on Sunday, um, kind of made a connection to uh, old TV show Rawhide uh, where, you know, um, an old cowboy is accidentally killed and his brothers are, are hanging around trying to track down the killers uh, who clearly did it by, uh, by no malice or intention. Uh, and they're, they're going to avenge their brother's blood. And then we kind of skipped ahead to look at, at the uh, Victor Hugo story of the Hunchback of Notre Dame and whether you're looking at the, the Disney version from the 90s and the animated feature or the 1939 uh, version, you know, the old black and white movie or the novel itself. In all of these pictures, uh, one, of the, one of the crucial scenes is when uh, Quasimodo swoops in and, and rescues Esmeralda, rescues the, the girl from being uh, executed and uh, takes her inside the church and, and cries out, sanctuary. 
that's the idea behind this, um, that within the walls of the church or here within the walls of the city, there is safety, there's refuge. So the core reality that we saw in the text that kind of binds all of these observations together is that though sin brings wrath, the Lord offers refuge. Though sin brings wrath, the Lord offers refuge. So God commanded uh, the avenger of blood to take the life, that this capital punishment to execute uh, the murderer. And yet it, what he's doing here is God is using that, that natural human anger to enact or accomplish righteous judgment, justice in this situation. Uh, he, he makes it very clear uh, at the end of the chapter. Uh, this is verse 33. says, do not pollute the land where you are. Bloodshed pollutes the land. And atonement cannot be made for the land on which blood has been shed, except by the blood of the one who shed it. Do not defile the land where you live and where I dwell, for I, the Lord, dwell among the Israelites. So he, um, in leading up to that, he says, anybody who's committed murder, you can't ransom them. You can't buy them out of this. So there's no advantage to being wealthy or anything else. Uh, Bloodshed requires this death penalty. Uh, But he also goes on to say, don't accept a ransom for the manslaughter either. While it doesn't require the taking of of that person's life, it does uh, require a penalty. There is a a culpability, and that person is to remain in the city of refuge until the death of the high priest. So God, for this sin of blood guilt, God demands an accounting. And he does not allow us to take it lightly. This is a a pretty major thing that that Christians have to believe. We have to understand, uh, particularly in our world, uh, I I don't know, particularly in any time, at any place. But the the truth of the matter is we've come as a society to take life pretty lightly again. We've failed to learn the lessons from previous generations and centuries. Uh, We've failed to learn the lessons of World War II. And we've allowed a utilitarian perspective to crowd into our understanding of life. And we live in a world now where, you know, people intentionally with whether we see it this way or not, with with a malice aforethought, take the life of unborn children every day. Millions of unborn children having been willfully Put to death, had their lives taken. Um, and we can spin it any way we want when we talk about the, the theoretical aspects of this, but it's a denial of that life, that human life being sacred and created in God's image. We can deny that it is life. We can make all these things, but we have to come up with ways to justify that. And in our world, we've stopped really even trying. It used to be uh, that we would... Um, you know, even those who were pro-choice considered abortion an evil that was unavoidable, that it's something that should be safe, legal, and rare. And nowadays, that's not where we are. It's not where we land. That there is a, uh, even though people don't like to hear the term, there is a slippery slope once we start to go down the path of 
making our own judgments, leaning on our own understanding rather than trusting in the Lord and his word. And the farther we get from the Lord's commands, the harder it is for us to rightly and consistently apply justice. Humanism will never pro provide that. A secularist perspective uh, on life will never provide God's justice. And in all of the perspective that we see here about uh, blood guilt and sin, it brings God's wrath. And in this particular chapter, we see God's wrath being expressed through the wrath of the avenger of blood. And yet in the midst of this, God, who commands the capital punishment uh, for the taking of the life, also offers refuge for those accused of taking a life uh, who have not yet been tried or have been found not guilty of intentional murder, but rather manslaughter. So there are some restrictions. There's some stipulations that we see here. Uh, no one can be put to death uh, with just one witness. There has to be at least two. There has to be a multitude of witnesses testifying to the same thing. Uh, the uh, Nobody can get bought out of their penalty once they're found guilty. A trial needs to take place among the assembly, so sort of a precursor of what we might know today as a trial by uh, by their peers. Uh, this is, uh, it's, it's, it's involving uh, the assembly, the, the nation, the people in God's acts of justice. So as as we see this play out in the chapter, there are a couple of the uh, the principles that we can observe uh, that might might at first seem hard to link together, but hopefully as we uh, get to the end of it, we can see some of this. First thing is that the Lord cares for those who care for his people. So uh, the Levites were called to give up the normal inheritance. They didn't have a portion in the land because the Lord was to be their portion, but God didn't call them to have nothing. He didn't say, you know, living for me is just going to be this miserable, ascetic lifestyle. Um, he didn't call them to poverty. He didn't call them to affluence. They were not to gain wealth uh, based on their work for the Lord. Good lesson for us uh, today is in this age of celebrity pastors. Um, but God also does not abandon those who work on his behalf and take care of his flock. And so uh, as he had previously provided and, and continues to, but as he had previously stated in the sacrifices that those sacrifices that were brought to the Lord were given to the Levites, to the priests on his behalf. And the priests and the Levites would partake in these as they're doing the work of, of God in the tabernacle. They would partake of the offerings that was their food, that was their benefit um, doing the Lord's work. But in doing the Lord's work, he would sustain them and provide for them. Now he's in, in a similar fashion telling the tribes who have received land to, in essence, if you will, give a portion of that land as an offering to the Lord by giving it to the Levites. God gives them the land and they give this representation of that land back to the Lord by giving towns to the Levites. And as he sets those things aside for them, God is taking care of those who are taking care of his people. The other thing that we really can't escape, and this is one of the major points in, in this uh, text, is that life is sacred and must be protected. Uh, it, we can't escape that idea. It's all throughout the scriptures from the beginning to the end. God gives life. God alone has the authority to take life. 
and so when life has to be taken for whatever reason, including here capital punishment, it, it is that is to be done at God's behest. When God commands that, then it's the right thing. Uh, that doesn't mean we get to just do what we want, but uh, God has given the governing officials, whoever that might be in the particular government of, of that time and place, the, he's given them the sword to restrain evil. And the greatest evil, if we can measure evils, the, the pinnacle of this, the epitome, is to take another human life. And so as God is, uh, as God is giving them these uh, responsibilities, he is... Uh, he is requiring the, the the leaders to establish among the people that life must be held up as sacred. It's a sanctified thing. The sanctity of human life extends from conception to death, and we don't get to choose that. That's, again, as I mentioned already, this is something that, that we're forgetting about. Across the world, we think it's great. I heard a, uh, someone reading a, a, an article uh, from Europe. I don't recall the, the nation of Belgium or the Netherlands. I think it was Belgium. Not sure. Anyhow, as they're reading this article, the, uh, the whole point of it was bragging about how within the EU, uh, Down syndrome has virtually been eliminated. But it hasn't been eliminated by you know, fixing the genetic issue that, that causes it is eliminated by killing in the womb those who were diagnosed as having or being likely to have Down syndrome. That's the opposite of good. That is evil in, in the worst form. Those who need protection most are most vulnerable in this society. We have forgotten that life is sacred and must be protected. We have touted what what used to be called the right to die, death with dignity, and you know all the different euphemisms that we come up with it. The, the assisted suicide, the uh, euthanasia uh, principle has become such a big deal in Europe and Canada. Uh, it, it's got a growing support here in the U.S. that we're again looking at life at the end of life rather than at the beginning as something that is ours to decide, but it's not, it's sacred. It belongs to God alone. So we can't get away from this passage, driving home that point that life is sacred. It must be protected. But at the same time, we see this next point that justice protects the rights of the accused as well as of the victims. So the rights of the accused and the rights of the victims are both protected here. God, uh, commands that the victims be defended, those the, those who um, have been murdered are to be avenged by the avenger of blood. And that's a command of God, not an allowance. At the same time, uh, God doesn't permit the violence and the vengeance to just run roughshod over society. Instead, it has to be established on the testimony of more than one witness. It has to be in a trial uh, among the assembly. And it the cities of refuge are for the protection of those who have been accused of uh, this crime so that 
before they are tried. It's the responsibility of the people of the assembly to make sure that they get to the city of refuge and, and are protected from the avenger of blood. In the meantime, uh, waiting for the trial, they have to, to be protected. But also after the trial, if they are found not guilty of intentional murder, but rather of, uh, of an accidental manslaying, uh, they are to be uh, granted safe conduct and protected by the assembly until they reach the city of refuge. So God establishes a, a true justice that protects both the rights of the accused and also the rights of the victims at the same time. And the fact that they uh, are to remain in, this, in, in these cities of refuge until the death of the high priest, even if they are found, uh, well, particularly if they are found guilty of manslaughter. If they are found guilty of murder, then they are to be executed. But those who are found guilty of manslaughter, not, uh, not with the blood guilt of, of intentional murder where their life is forfeit, they're still required to remain in the city of refuge until the death of the high priest. If they leave before that, then they're fair game for the avenger of blood to take their life. And it's not a sin. It's not, they're not guilty of murder and killing that manslayer who has left the city of refuge. So even though it's not a capital crime, they have to remain essentially in exile until that death of the high priest. So the death of the high priest then is in a sense, the, uh, the removal of that blood guilt, it completes their sentence and they are free to go at that, at that point. If they leave before that, then they have to pay that blood guilt with their own life. So there is a culpability even when it's unintentional. And, and we see that in, in our lives today in so many different ways. Our choices have consequences. There's, there's no way for us to avoid that reality. My choices determine my destiny. And so the, the sins that I commit unintentionally still bear consequences no matter what, the, the, whether it's through foolishness or neglect, uh, you know, through no fault of my own. When I do something wrong, even if I don't realize I'm doing it or I don't know that, I, that it's wrong, there is still a consequence. And very often those are natural consequences that, that we can't avoid. The person who has a, a, you know, a large millstone dropped on them accidentally, it wasn't, they didn't have any reason that they wanted to be killed by this millstone. They didn't get a choice in that, but uh, they're still dead. The one who dropped it, may not have intended to do it, but they still bear a culpability in that. And there is a consequence to our unintentional sins. And the last thing that, that we see uh, is perhaps it, it feels more obscure. I don't think it is. It's what the Lord says at the end of the chapter as he really drives home this idea. Blood guilt pollutes the land and requires blood atonement. Uh, this very clearly in the passage has to do uh, very literally with the sin of murder. It is, uh, it, it, that's what the text is about. It's, it's a big deal, right? It, it was a big deal in the, in the rampant violence of the Canaanite nations before them, and God is driving them out because of it. It's a big deal in Israel. God's people are to be holy to him and cannot live like the world lives. Uh, and so God's people must have 
a view of life as sacred and protecting it. Therefore, blood guilt in the land pollutes the land. That land represents their relationship with God, and it's defiled when uh, when there is blood guilt there. Now, Spurgeon uh, made the leap from the literal killing to what he called the killing of God's law. And I think that's fitting. I think that's appropriate for us to understand that, you know, from the very beginning in the book of Genesis, the Lord told Adam uh, way back in the garden that if you sin, you die. Sin brings death. We see Paul saying in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. There is no way around that. Because of that, we know that the re- without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. That's the picture we have throughout the Old Testament sacrifices. And most specifically, we see this carried out for us in Christ dying on our behalf. And really, that's the, that's the type that we see here. This is not uh, allegory. These things are, are very real historical events. And it's necessary for Israel to receive this at this time. We'll talk a little bit more as we wrap up next week in the book of Numbers uh, about that idea. But this, uh, this picture of, um, of Christ in these cities of refuge uh, is where, where those who have guilt get to flee, to find sanctuary from the avenger of blood and the avenger of blood here in this type is not it's not the devil it's not uh you know our earthly enemies the avenger of blood in the passage is commanded to do this by god so there's a representation here of god's law we are pursued because of our sin of killing god's law we are pursued by God's law, by the avenger of blood. The righteous judge will bring sentence upon us. But he has provided for us a place to flee, a place to go to find refuge. And and the picture here is of those who are not guilty of murder. The picture in Christ is much greater. This is God's only son. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And this picture is for those who are guilty, not, not for the innocent to flee to, but for the guilty to flee to, for anyone who will turn to him, will turn from their wretchedness, from their sinfulness, and say, Lord, I got no place to stand. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run to you. I'm going to flee to you, and I need to be saved. That's what Jesus does for us. He steps in front of the avenger of blood, and he takes our place. He receives that death penalty for us so that the penalty of our sin is already paid. Now, one of the beautiful things about belonging to Christ that that we're told in the book of Romans is that is this idea. How could we possibly think that if God was willing to give his son for us, his, his son, his only begotten son, his beloved, to give him up for us all while we were still sinners, while we were still objects of wrath, rightly deserving wrath. God is angry with the wicked every day, and his wrath is rightly going to fall on every one of us. We've established throughout this uh, journey in Numbers that we don't escape God's wrath. 
your sin will find you out. And there's a price. And the price is death. But Jesus comes in and takes all of that death for us. All of God's wrath falls on him so that by faith in him and faith alone in him alone, God, by his grace alone, reaches in and says, this, this penalty has been paid. This one is clean. This one is mine. If he did that for us while we were still his enemies, how could we possibly think that anything we face now, whatever it is, would be so uh, would be something that God would not be using for us? He's not going to give up his son for us and then not bless us in the midst of it. Stacy wrote a song last week specifically specifically for this sermon called "Run to You," and uh, the the last verse of it. it, it Kind of reminds me of what she's dealing with right now as, as she's unavailable to be with us. The last verse says, I'm facing uphill battles and I've seen better days. And you still hold out your hand and smile and say, you have little faith. And I cry out. Oh, I cry out. And I know you hear my voice. My own strength is failing. Lord, and you're my only choice. The chorus says, I run, I run to you. Don't ever let me go. I fall. And we do, don't we? we? We fall. I fall into you. Hold me above the water. Jesus, keep me close. That sentiment, I think, sums up what we're looking at, that though sin brings wrath, we live in a world of sin and wrath. God offers refuge for those who will flee to him. So uh, without, without more here, I just want to say to you, I, I hope and pray that each one of us in the midst of our darkness in the midst of the the overwhelming times that we will flee to christ as our city of refuge find our hope in him thanks for joining us today